Hello, friends. Here we are, another episode of I Need Friends, a podcast about whatever. I'm Kelly. Thanks for being my friend today. Sometimes I forget to say my name, so it's Kelly. There you go. Um, I'm finally doing the Watchmen episode. Not really finally. Um, I've been trying to do this episode, and there's uh, about two hours of me talking about this that's never going to be released to the internet um, <laughs> of me attempting to do this before. Because so I'm, I'm talking about Watchmen, the comic, and also the movie, and also the show. And I wanted to talk about all of them together. And it's really, really hard to discuss all three of them, especially since I try to keep my episodes around a half hour, even though Jennifer's body was like 40 minutes, I think. But I have a lot to say about that. Speaking of which, let me address something from Jennifer's body before we get into Watchmen. I had said in that episode that I thought Megan Fox was cool. And I think I'm going to have to retract that statement. I just, mm, no, I don't think so. Like, you know, she started dating MGK and that's like one thing because that's a lot to get into there. I could do a whole episode about that. I just don't really care that much about like celebrity drama and celebrity relationships to like look more into what just pops up in my feed on things. So like, I don't know. I just don't really give a shit that much, but also like, so she started hanging out with, um, Courtney Kardashian because, you know, MGK and Travis Barker and like, look, once you start hanging out with the Kardashians, sorry, like that's it. You, you lost any chance of redemption with me. I do not like the Kardashians. I don't like just about everything that they do. Um, a lot of really rich celebrities in general, which that, I don't know, that could be another episode. (laughs) I don't know, but I'm going to stop telling you guys what episodes I'm doing next because I've been talking about this Watchmen episode for, I don't know, maybe two months. It's been a long time. And I'm like, you know, I feel like I just need to get it done before I keep putting out other episodes. So it's keeping me from doing other things that I want to do and that I'm like ready to do. But I'm like, no, you told them you're doing this Watchmen episode. And so you have to do it. And so I think I'm just going to stop making those kinds of commitments. (laughs) I can't keep. So, um, yeah. So Watchmen, let me see if I can do this this time. What do you guys think? You think I'm going to you gonna pull through on this one? I don't know. Let's see. I've just been having a really hard time. I have so much to say about each part of it. And it's, it's such a, I don't know. The story is just filled with, with so much, you know, you have your main plot, but there's all these other little stories going on and all these little backstories that you're getting, um, from all the characters and even these, these side characters that just are so interesting. And, um, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons who created Watchmen, the book, um, they just created this amazing, really detailed world. Um, cause Watchmen is just set in 
an alternate universe in New York in the 80s. So it's it's very similar to our time, but there's quite a few significant differences, like a lot of airships and electric cars and, um, you know, the cigarettes that they smoke. And But there's, there's lots of similarities. Like he has, um, you know, a more salacious tabloid kind of newspaper and a right-wing newspaper. There's a guy that works in a newsstand and he kind of helps, you know, drive some parts of the story. And what's going on is it, it, the story starts off kind of like as a, as a murder mystery. Well, I mean, it is like a murder mystery. Um, you have two detectives, uh, at the scene of a crime where some really tough guy, Edward Blake, who worked for the government has just been murdered. He was thrown out of his apartment window, which is not an easy thing to do, not just because of the apartment, but because of this guy and how tough he was. So, um, it's, it's a little bit investigating that murder and trying to figure out who, who did it. And then it turns into like this huge conspiracy where I'm going to spoil this, you know, 30 year old story (laughs) for you. So if you don't want to know, then sorry, I probably should have told you sooner. You shouldn't listen to this episode if you don't want spoilers because it's happening. So it turns into this whole conspiracy where you find out that one of the characters, which I'll get into in a minute, um, has actually set up this whole plot to, uh, frame some people for murder and, um, bring in this psychic squid alien thing this giant one dropping it on New York City to save the world from nuclear war. Because this story is, um, you know, centered around all that conflict going on with Russia and Afghanistan and Iraq. And, um, you know, everyone's kind of just constantly worried that nuclear warheads could be coming their way any minute. And it was a real and present fear for Alan Moore at the time that he was writing this and was a a present fear for a lot of the people alive at that time, I was not alive yet, but, (laughs) um, so the character Adrian Veidt and his hero name is Ozymandias. He was the one that came up with the plot to drop the squid on New York city, because in his mind, um, if the world had a common enemy, uh, to, fight against that they would unite and not fight against each other. So the idea was to put in this crazy um giant alien thing that no one knows where it came from, no one understands it or how it got there, so you know they would all be equally fearful and want to unite to you know be ready for this thing if something else happens. So that's what um that's what Adrian Veidt, Ozymandias, was thinking, is that he's he's stopping nuclear war and, like, the whole world being destroyed by killing what ends up being three million people. Millions of people die in this, um, in this squid attack. And you see it in the comic, and it's, it's drawn out in, like, several panels. Just all this destruction, tragedy, and you're seeing a lot of people you know, that are kind of on the streets in New York that you're seeing a lot throughout the story. And here they are, they just all kind of came together in this one moment right before they all died. And, you know, so there's a lot of moral 
debate there. It's kind of like, (laughs) it's kind of like the trolley problem on steroids. Like, is it, is it morally okay to kill 3 million people to save potentially the entire world? I think that's one of the issues is that, you know, we didn't actually know for sure whether nuclear war was happening in the comic. They're, they're building up, you know, that this nuclear war might happen. And they even show, you know, Richard Nixon with his team, you know, discussing uh, the path of the warheads, the potential fallout and just like how awful it would be. But you, you don't actually know if it was in fact going to happen, but it's, it's really terrifying that, I mean, this is, this is a real situation that can happen. People do have (laughs) nuclear weapons and the decision to destroy the whole world kind of lies in the hands of a few powerful individuals. And that's just really, really scary. So, um, that's, that's what the story is about, but you're following, um, a bunch of characters too. So you have, um, Dr. Manhattan or John Osterman. Now he's the only one that actually has superpowers. So all of these superheroes are not actually superheroes. They're just masked vigilantes who are, you know, going in and fighting crime. And it used to be that, you know, they were kind of on their own and they kind of banded together and got a publicist kind of that kind of accidentally worked out and they got slightly commercialized. Um, And then they all disbanded. And then you had some people working with police. So it's like some of the mass vigilantes were working with the police and then some of them were kind of doing it on their own. But anyway, none of them had like superpowers. Dr. Manhattan, John Osterman, he got his powers by getting caught in an intrinsic field chamber. I have such a hard time saying that right. Um, I have to be very deliberate. Intrinsic field chamber um, where he was just ripped apart particle by particle and um, was able to put himself back together. They show him kind of slowly reappearing a circulatory system, a nervous system until finally he's all together, but he's like this blue creature, um, that is basically a God in the comic. He gets called a God. He gets called a Superman. Um, he's not a God. And he also, um, he experiences time all at once past, present, and future. Everything that has ever happened to him and ever will happen to him is happening to him like all at once. And there's a whole volume in this comic book that shows how Dr. Manhattan experiences time. And it's just done so incredibly. It goes back and forth from him holding a photograph in his hand and looking at a picture of him and his ex-lover. And then, you know, the times that he was with her, but then it's also, you know, he's still in his current moment. And then he's remembering this other woman that he's with and is, I mean, not really remembering. It's just, he's kind of in all of those moments. Um, so Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons just did such an incredible job, like really getting you to feel like, I guess as close as what we know to what it would be like to experience time all at once. Um, so to really look at that through Dr. Manhattan's eyes. So he's the only one with superpowers. Then we have, um, Rorschach, who I think a lot of people know who he is. Uh, he's the one with the trench coat and the Rorschach mask and the hat. Um, so he kind of like when the movie came out, kind of became like the cool badass character, but he's, 
he's not <laughs> like Rorschach is a really, really deeply troubled individual. He sees everything in black and white. He's so unwilling to compromise. He's not like terribly intelligent, but not that he's not smart. Does that make sense? You know what I mean there? Like he's, he's keen, but he doesn't have like, he wouldn't do well on a test. You know what I'm saying? So he's a little more prone towards, um, violence, even though he doesn't really like violence. He really doesn't like sex. You know, you find out, um, when he goes to prison and there's a whole chapter of him, uh, Rorschach talking with the prison psychologist, and you even get a peek into the prison psychologist's life and how his work is affecting his marriage. And he's even at the end when the squid comes and kills everyone with the newsstand guy. Um, and, uh, he like, you find out when he's with the prison psychologist that, you know, his mom was a prostitute and it was what she was trying to do to survive. But him being a kid was getting in the way of her doing her work. And he, she ended up abusing him and mistreating him. And so that caused a lot of, you know, problems for him. And he, you know, lived in a really crappy apartment. He was he was stinky. His landlady was always complaining about the smell of his apartment. People would complain about the smell of him. He had poor social skills. Um, he was a bit of a parasite. He was always, you know, breaking into people's homes and eating their food. And this dude had like a death wish too. You know, he was just any type of honorable way that he could go out, he would go out and he, and he took that. He does end up dying in the story. Um, and it's like, and he, he wanted it. And he saw a moment where he's like, here's, here's where I go on my terms. And, and he fucking took it. So I just, I get really confused. <laughs> he's like, we're like, yeah, he's so cool. Um, because he's not, you should not want to be like Rorschach at all. <laughs> um, and then you have Dan Dryberg, who's Night Owl. But he's the second Night Owl because um, in the original, like, Minutemen, the, the vigilantes I was talking about before, he was night owl. And when he retired, Dan Dryberg, who looked up to him so much, you know, and, and already had an affinity for birds, he wanted to be the next night owl. And he's got all like the kind of like Batman gadgets and everything. He's got his underground little cave um, where he's got all his stuff. And he has an airship, too, that's called Archie. Um, and he wears like an owl costume, but he's, you know, there are, most of these people are, are retired. Like Rorschach's still doing his thing, but Dan Dryberg, he's kind of out of shape. He's lonely. doesn't really have much direction right now. Um, and he ends up linking back up with Silk Spectre. Silk Spectre is also a second, um, you know, whatever person. Her mom was Silk Spectre. So she was the next Silk Spectre and pretty much did it because her mom wanted her to. And that's pretty much all she knows. Her mom, Sally Jupiter, who was the first Silk Spectre, was just really all about it. She really enjoyed like the way that she was kind of sexualized. And um, she ended up marrying her publicist who got her so popular and got the Minutemen popular and everything. Um, so Lori, the second Silk Spectre, she kind of had no choice but to follow in her mom's footsteps. So that's all she knows. And she's done doing that too, because now she's with Dr. Manhattan. Dr. Manhattan is no longer with his old lover who we, you know, we see all about and get their background and everything. He's with Lori, who 
he got with when she was 16. So gross. Um, <laughs> but she's been with him for a long time now and they're living on some government base because now Dr. Manhattan is helping the government. He kind of like, he kind of just does what the people around him expect him to do. Even when you're getting um, a look into his past life, when he was John Osterman, his dad was a watchmaker. So he was a watchmaker. And then his dad told him he should get into quantum physics. So he got into quantum physics. Even as Dr. Manhattan, the government was like, you should do this. You should wear this. You should go do this. He even fought the Vietnam War for America. And in this alternate universe, America won the Vietnam War and Vietnam actually became a 51st state. And what's really cool and what I'm telling you, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons were just put so much detail into this. The way that you know that Vietnam became a 51st state is because there's a newspaper headline just kind of in the background of one of these shots. And that's how you get this, this information. It might be mentioned somewhere at like the end of one of the comics, but I'm pretty sure like that's the only way that you know about it. Um, but yeah, Dr. Manhattan won the Vietnam War for America. So there you go. Um, the person that gets killed in the beginning, that whose murder you're investigating, Edward Blake, he was the comedian. Um, the comedian in the sense, like, he worked for the government kind of comedian. And also, you know, his whole thing was, like, that the, the violence and the grossness of the world is just one big joke. You know, uh, this is all a joke that people would live and be tortured in this way, basically. So he was pretty cynical and he was also very violent. Um, he tried to, uh, sexually assault, uh, Sally Jupiter because he was part of the original Minutemen. So he worked with the first Silk Spectre and basically beat her up when she wouldn't let him. And it's a very short scene in the comic. They keep it very brief. Um, but she ends up, you find out later on in the story as, and I know I haven't gotten through all the characters yet, so sorry. Um, but Lori ends up telling, um, she's trying to convince Dr. Manhattan to save the earth because they realize they're on the brink of nuclear war. So she's like, you can stop this. Why won't you stop this? And he's like, I don't see a point in saving humanity. And so she's trying to convince him to save humanity and that, you know, humanity is worth saving all the while convincing herself that it isn't while Dr. Manhattan becomes convinced that it is by, you know, talking about how it was so unusual that she's here because Edward Blake, the man who tried to assault her mother is actually her father. And so just that she came here out of the situation. And not only that, but that every single person is here was one of millions of sperm vying for an egg. So he starts to just think about how, like how rare it is for life to actually happen. And therefore that makes it special. And so he's going to, you know, come back and save them. But of course, you know, we already know that the squid gets dropped. And so, um, there, uh, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff I could get into with Sally Jupiter and Edward Blake and Lori. And I just, I don't, I don't think it's necessary, but there's a lot more that goes into that. And Lori kind of realizing these things. Um, but I mentioned briefly Mandius. He's the one who was planning the whole conspiracy that you don't find out until the end. So Adrian Veidt, Mandius, he is a self-made billionaire. 
you find out that his parents were millionaires and they died and gave him all their money, but he gave it away because he wanted to, you know, start from scratch and build an empire. And he has, he's got like this perfume called nostalgia. He's got a money, uh, not a money line. He's got money. Um, he's got a, a toy line for, you know, Ozymandias and some of the other characters, even one of the villains, Moloch. Um, and, uh, He's like just, I mean, he's just like a stellar human being. He's incredibly physically fit. He's insanely smart. He's also like obsessed with like ancient Egypt and Alexander the Great and the Pharaohs. So in his outfit, you know, he's got purple and gold on that color of like royalty. And he really just, his idea, he just wants greatness. Um, He just wants to be amazing in anything that he does. And so he's kind of got this savior complex and He's got these grandiose ideals of himself, and that's why he ends up creating this squid, because he thinks that, you know, he's the one that has the idea that's going to save the world. And he's got this base in it, Antarctica, Karnak, that's huge, that he's planning everything from. So um, let me see if I got the characters for you. We got Silk Spectre, Night Owl, Warshak, Dan Dryberg, Dr. Manhattan, the comedian, I think that's it, but oh my God, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I'm forgetting someone. I mean, there were other people in the Minutemen, like Captain Metropolis and Mothman and like Dollar Bill doesn't really get talked about, but, um, so anyway, you know, they're, they're trying to save the world and they can't make it happen by the time that Lori and Dr. Manhattan get, you know, to, well, they get back to earth cause they were on Mars. That's a, that's a long part of it that we don't need to get into, but it's, really cool. Um, they get back to earth and the squid is already hit and they're looking at all the aftermath. And then, you know, they end up going to Antarctica to confront Adrian. Cause I think that, I think Rorschach ends up telling them cause Rorschach finds out Rorschach is the one that's kind of, he's the one that knows something is up as soon as Edward Blake dies. And he's just kind of sticking his nose and everything. And he's keeping a journal that you're following throughout the, the story Um, and then you're also following another really cool thing that, that they do in this comic is they have a comic within a comic. So it's the black freighter and it's like a pirate comic and it's, it's, um, you know, going along with some of the things that are happening in the story. So you're watching, there's a a young gentleman that is reading this comic next to the newsstand. So he's interacting with the guy at the newsstand and they find out at the end, right before they die, they've been interacting this whole time. They find out they have the same name. Just kind of funny that they were right there not getting to know each other. Um, But yeah, the pirate comic is really cool in itself and the way that they weave it in with the story. And it doesn't just stick to one character either. It just goes with the story. Um, So sometimes it's following what's happening with Ozymandias. Sometimes it's following um, what's happening with Dr. Manhattan. Um, Just really, really cool. But it's about this pirate like getting stranded and basically going paranoid from being like, you know, delusional, like Tom Hanks castaway style on an island. So, um, that's really cool. And then also at the end of each volume, you get more that's not a comic. So the first three volumes, you get an excerpt from Hollis Mason, who was the original Night Owl from his book. Like this character in this world wrote a book about his experiences as a mass vigilante and all the people that he worked with. And that's how you're getting some of the backstory on these characters. It's not even in the panels of the comic. It's in these excerpts from this book. 
And then you go on even, even further and some of them are notes. Like you have notes about Sally Jupiter and like pictures and notes from her publicist and things that she needs to do. And then uh, the volume where Rorschach is in prison, you have, um, uh, you have notes that his uh, psychiatrist or psychologist had typed up and stuff about his dreams and drawings that he had made. And um, you're even getting like an article about Dr. Manhattan. You're getting an article about the author of the black freighter, the comic that's in the story. So, I mean, just incredibly, incredibly detailed. Um, this, this world is just so intricate and they did, I mean, just such an amazing job. Um, there's even a, a volume called a fearful symmetry, which I think is the one where Rorschach is in prison. Um, but the panels, if you look at, if you look at the pages, the front page mirrors the last page, the second page mirrors the next to last page and so on and so forth. And the middle two pages mirror each other. It's symmetrical. Just those things that they put in there are just and everything has such a nice rhythm. Like Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons really wanted to see what they could do with the medium. Alan Moore was really tired of like the silliness of comics. And it's just, it's very juvenile. It's these men just running around in underwear and being like, I can change the whole world and I can save everyone. Just really like naive thinking. And it doesn't get into like the crazy aftermath that would be there and the other people that would be affected. And not only that, the type of personality that it would take for someone to get into something like that. And so Alan Moore was really the first person to kind of like explore that, to explore like how crazy and messed up and traumatized these people would need to be to go put masks on and fight crime of their own volition. So um, that's one of the reasons that he uses the squid at the end. It's like, it's supposed to be kind of silly, but it, I mean, it also works because, you know, Adrian Veidt, Ozymandias, as he's setting up this conspiracy where he manages to teleport this ginormous squid into uh, New York city um, because he's just crazy smart and can figure all this shit out. Um, he's like, it's, it's an alien. It's an unknown thing. You know, it's, it's definitely weird, um, to look at and is still unsettling, but it is also a little bit silly and that's, that's intentional. So there's a lot, a lot of commentary in this, in this comic. There's a lot beneath the surface. It's not just a murder mystery. It's not just a comic. It's not just a story about a bunch of heroes. You know, it's also about people trying to cling to what power that they have or trying to find some kind of power when they feel so powerless and, and the, the fear and the pain and everything that goes along with that and trying to deal with your little life problems that are still very valid on top of like these other fears that you have, like being on the brink of nuclear war and that, you know, someone could just press a couple buttons and bam, half of the world is destroyed. So there's just so much in that, that comic. And I'm, I really am, am only kind of touching the surface there. Like, even if you're not into comics, like this is just, it's a book that absolutely needs to be read. It's, it's such a good story. And it always makes me like, there's just so much going on. Like, uh, um, even like all the colors are just so uh, vibrant without being like 
childish. I think it's because, you know, they made it a point to use secondary colors like greens and purples and oranges. I mean, there is a lot of red too. Um, and, and yellow, but it's just, everything works with, I think we're all pretty familiar with how, you know, stories will use color to kind of guide you with what's going on. Um, and Watchmen certainly does that. And that's nothing particularly groundbreaking, but they just do it so well. Like all the violent scenes are just dark and red and, you know, the scenes where there's like, you know, fear, uncertainty, there's more yellow and green and, it's just, it's just very, it's very colorful and just rich. It just, you just get so into this story. Um, the only thing that like takes me out of the story when I'm, when I'm reading it is I start getting all kinds of ideas for writing. This book inspires me every single time I read it and I've read it so many times. I keep wanting to read other things. Like I've been, um, slowly getting through V for Vendetta, but I just keep, it just keeps making me want to go back and read Watchmen because I just love it so much. So let's get to the movie uh, that was done by Zack Snyder, I think, in 2009. This is how I was first introduced to Watchmen. Um, I had no idea about it, never heard of it, didn't know anything about the characters, went and saw it in the theaters, and it it made me want nothing to do with Watchmen ever. To me, seeing it, it was just like the other superhero movies that were coming out. And also, I didn't know that most of these characters weren't really supposed to have superpowers because they had like kind of super strength in the movie. Um, and I just like the opening credits when that was going on, that little opening scene. Uh, people talk about how amazing it was. I had no idea what was happening. I had no idea who any of these people were, why they were showing me any of this stuff. And then we don't see them throughout the rest of the movie. So I, I further have no idea. You know, it's, it's, it, there's a lot going on in this story. So if you don't tell it cleanly, it's not going to come across. And I, I just, oh, I couldn't wait to get out of there. And I kept thinking that the movie was ending. There's several scenes where, you know, like at the end of a movie or like towards a conclusion, they'll do like that long zoom out. And there's like that swelling dramatic music. And you think like, okay, well, this is clearly the movie's ending now because this is what happens when movies. Nope, it just keeps going. So knowing about the comic years later, <laughs> you know, it makes sense to me why it was so difficult to make Watchmen a movie. I mean, it, it really is. I'm about to talk mad shit about Zack Snyder and his movie. And I know that people love it. And a lot of people say it's one of the best adaptations and they say it's like, you know, so true to the source material. I just, I disagree like so hard. I also don't like Zack Snyder either, which I'm sure like, I'm going to get some hate mail for that, please. I, still no hate mail. I have very strong opinions. Like someone, come on, seriously, surely me hating Zack Snyder is going to get me some hate mail. I need friends pod at gmail.com. Okay. <laughs> come fight me. I don't really want to fight. I just like talking about it. Um, <laughs> no, but seriously, I don't, I don't, like where what he does with a lot of his movies i find them very difficult to watch um i refuse to watch his latest one what is it justice league like that seven hour movie mm, no 
I'm just, I came out at one part, my boyfriend was watching it and I was watching it, uh, with him for like a few minutes and it was just going on for so long, just this one scene. And I was like, wow, so much of this is so unnecessary or there'd be all this dialogue that I'm like, you could have really shortened that. And so anyway, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. I left the room, I think. Um, but Watchmen has a lot of that too. So like, yeah, it's a really fucking difficult story to tell. And the the story was made to be in the medium of a comic book. It was not made to be a movie. It's it's damn near impossible to adapt. But at the same time, Zack Snyder put a bunch of shit in the movie that that didn't need to go in there. He made scenes longer than they needed to be. And it gets, you know, talked about as being so true to the source material and how he was like recreating panels in the comic book, which number one, if you're recreating a panel in a comic book, it's not, it might be cool to look at, but it's not impressive to me. You've done nothing original here. You had the template out for you and bam, you, you just, you just copied the image. Like, okay, um, Wow, great job. Um, but even that, he didn't get a lot of those right. And some of them are really small and not that important, but some of them are, you know, like there's one where um, Rorschach, when he's breaking into Edward Blake's apartment, because he just breaks in anywhere he wants to, um, to try to see if he can find out what happened with the murder, he um, is he climbs through the window. It's like this giant, you know, wall, uh, floor to ceiling window. Um, and so he's, he's climbing through it over this little bar and that's all it is. Like one of the panels is showing him like climbing through. Well, in the movie, Zack Snyder has him like perched up like he's fucking Batman or something and is like holding it there for a second. And you're like, okay, well that's, that's not what happened. Like, that's not what he did. He just climbed through the fucking window. He didn't stand there. Like it just... You know, and there's like five seconds that you could have put something else in. Um, And that shit adds up, you know, five seconds here, five seconds there. But also it was just kind of like, I think that, I I think that, you know, Zack Snyder read this comic and was like, oh, Rorschach's like really, really cool. We should make Rorschach cool in this movie. And like, everyone wants to be like Rorschach, right? Because he's tough and badass. So we got to make him badass. But like, he's not, like, he's just not. Like, I already explained that. He's not. Um... So it was just, you know, one of those things. There's also a scene where um, Dan Dryberg, the second night owl, he and he and Lori end up kind of, well, I mean, they do get together, but they're kind of getting together initially. I guess that's, that's how getting together works, right? Um, <laughs> but they're getting ready to go out and, you know, fight some crime. And she comes down in the comic. She comes down still in her coat over her um, outfit because there's this whole thing in the comic that's building up about their vulnerability and their inability to connect with each other outside of being in their costumes. Like they're naked with each other, but they actually feel more vulnerable in their costumes and they do naked. And there's some whole deep thing with that about their identity. So Lori comes down to Dan Dryberg's little cave and Dan Dryberg is already in his night owl costume but so is Lori, but she has a coat on over hers. And, you know, Dan hears her coming. And this, again, this is in the comic. And he turns and looks and has his mouth agape a little bit. But she's still in her coat and everything. Like, he's just turning to look at her. He's not, like, staring at her like, oh, yeah, drooling. 
Well, in the movie, you know, because girls have to be hot, Zack Snyder had uh, Malin Ackerman, who played um, Silk Spectre in the movie, who looked just like her, but did not act very well as her. And I love Malin Ackerman as an actress, by the way, but in this movie, she did bad. So, um, which she even admitted that she was not appropriately prepared and it showed she knew nothing about this character. Um, so in the movie, she's coming down already in her costume without a jacket on. Also, Zack Snyder has changed the costume in the book. She's wearing like this kind of sheer flowy thing. That's like see-through. It's kind of like lingerie basically, but in this, she's wearing like this tight, leathery thing with like garters and it's just so stupid it, they completely changed her cot they totally changed her costume you kept the colors the same oh but now she's wearing like this rubbery latex thing like that's not at all what it was like i don't know why more people were bothered by that i i get annoyed when they change like those kind of like iconic things you, you need to keep those the same i don't know i guess there's a little wiggle room there but Either way, it's it's not her costume at all. But she's walking down the steps already in it, and, like, the wind's, like, all blowing in her hair. She's all hot. She's hot, you guys. She's hot. And Dan Dryberg turns to look at her with his mouth open because he's like, oh, wow, she's so hot. And I'm like, that's not... That's not how it happened. That's not what happened, but... Okay, whatever. I guess that's how you're doing it. Um, another one with Dan and Lori is um when they're first reconnecting in the comic they meet at some restaurant and when it starts with them in the comic they're already sitting down at the table well in the movie you know because girls are hot Zack snyder decides to have you know maylin ackerman come in and we see like the grand reveal of her walk in all dressed up and you know the close-up on her and the romeo and juliet music i mean they didn't really have that but it was basically like that. And you're like, okay, you're just putting all this stuff in here that wasn't in the comic that you're adding on your own. That's taking up all this, this time, this precious time that you need to get all this shit in the story. So sorry, like you don't fucking get to complain now that you didn't have enough time to put the shit in that you wanted to put in when you took all this extra time to throw in all your other shit that you wanted to put in that wasn't even in the fucking comic. So um, there's another one where, uh, it's Dan Dryberg again, but he's with the comedian this time and they're in his airship and they're trying to help clear the streets for some, there's some riot. And, um, you know, the comedian Edward Blake is like just immediately resorting to a violence to get them off the street when Dan's trying to do a little more talking. And so he starts like shooting stuff at him and, um, you know, the streets are cleared pretty quickly, but that's kind of all you see is you see like the comedian like you know giving them a warning and then you see the streets like cleared so you're not watching this whole like violent display like play out and of course <sighs> that gets put in the movie and he also he changes the comedian's outfit too like his thing isn't even the same he's got this like ridiculous like shoulder armor that he didn't have i mean he had some kind of like weird shoulder armor in the comic but it wasn't like that and i don't think you like ever see him in his mask and he made his hair like way too crazy it wasn't that like messed up <sighs> dan dryberg was too fit also like in in the comic dan dryberg is a little he's a little frumpy he's a little out of shape he's a little older a little more tired so 
I don't know. It's just, it's weird. I think Patrick Wilson is the guy's name that plays him. I really like him. I think he did a good Dan, but just, you know, you got to make people hot, right? So, um, and then another outfit that he changed. So he, I'm just talking about all these things in the movie that weren't like the comic that's supposed to be so true to the source material. Um, he changes Ozymandias' costume. It's like this brown, gray, like, boring-ass thing. And I'm like, no, there is a reason that his costume was purple. Like, did, did you even did you even get the comic? Did you understand any of this? Did you understand anything about the characters and what they were going through, what's happening with them, what they represent? Did you get any of that? Because it really doesn't seem like you did. And also, the guy who played Ozymandias was way too small. He was so tiny. Like... <laughs> Ozymandias wasn't like that. He was tall. He had these broad shoulders. Even in the comic, he looked like someone who would walk in a room and just like really command your presence. So um, one thing in the comic that I didn't mention before is that Ozymandias had also framed Dr. Manhattan as, um, you know, having given people cancer because of the radiation that he's like putting out. And one of those people that he's saying um, he gave cancer to is his ex-lover, Janie, his first, you know, lover that was with him when he became Dr. Manhattan. And in the comic, she's just doing a little interview with Nova Express, the more like salacious newspaper. And um, it's it's pretty brief. It's just a few panels. And, uh, yeah, that's it. So you're getting a little backstory on that about how she's like, yeah, he gave me cancer and this bastard and blah, blah, blah. And she's smoking because it doesn't really matter. So that's what's in the comic. Well, Zack Snyder in the movie decides he's going to change that, too. And let's add something in that doesn't even need to be in there. Because, honestly, you, you could have even left out the part with Janie. Like, that could have been done in, like, some dialogue. You know, like... um. I think actually in the comic that the reporter who confronts Dr. Manhattan while he's on like some live TV show and is being asked questions, some reporter asked Dr. Manhattan about the cancer. And I think he even brings up Janie's so like, that's really all you need to know. That's all the exposition that you need. So you could leave out even that, that part in the comic and the movie, but no, he's like, let's have Janie fucking at, the studio where they're recording this thing where they're shooting this thing and let's have her show up. And even though she didn't look janky and fucked in the comic, let's make her all scraggly and she has like no hair and let's make her look like she's 75 and, you know, just have her like confront him, which didn't happen in the comic. What the fuck? What the fuck are you doing? Like that's, it is stupid. It's so dumb. It's just dumb. Uh, he also changes Karnak. He changes the way Karnak looks. Karnak! Ozymandias' fucking home base. He even changes that shit. And then also, like, the colors. Like, what fucking happened to all the colors? You didn't have to shoot this movie like it was 300. Like, this is a different comic, okay? You're on, this is a different movie. You don't have to put the same, like, dark filters on every single thing. Like, you know, it's Instagram in 2012 or something where everyone's using, like, the X-Pro filter. It's just getting all dark. Like, that's what his movies look like to me. Anyway, if you look at the behind-the-scenes stuff from when they were shooting this movie, um, all of the 
um, scenes, like everywhere that they have set up, the sets. Wow, there you go. That's what it's called. All the sets look so bright and colorful, vibrant, deep, rich colors. The yellows, the purples, the reds, the oranges, like it's there. And it looks great. And then when you see the movie, you're like, that's not, that's not what that's like at all. Like, that's not it. How did you get from that to that? And they spent so much time putting all this detail into recreating these sets to make them, you know, look like the comic, even putting in things in like picture frames that you're probably not even going to see on the movie. Um, so it's just like that much detail went into it. And then you just kind of like erase so much of it by making everything like so dark. Um, and what's interesting, so Alan Moore did not want to be a part of this for several reasons, but Dave Gibbons was, he was the illustrator. Alan Moore was the author, but they like work on the story together. So, um, Dave Gibbons is, is working with Zack Snyder and all of them. And if you listen to his interviews before the movie premieres, he is so excited about this movie, like so fucking pumped and is talking about how accurate he thinks it's going to be and how true it's going to be to the comic and just how he's so excited to see these characters brought to life after so many years that you know he created and um then you see interviews with him after the movie premiered and he's a little less enthusiastic he still liked the movie he's still very excited to see his characters brought to life and at least the impression that I get is that's really the most exciting thing for him and that someone loved it enough to recreate it like that. But he even says that it's not a reverent adaptation. And he also mentions how, you know, the colors weren't as bright as they seemed like they were going to be when they were shooting. And so it's just, you know, you could make the argument to me like, Hey, Dave Gibbons likes the movie, but yeah, but like, probably for different reasons than, than you do. And he even said himself, it's not a reverent adaptation. Um, so I think that he still watches like the movie though, but I just, ugh, it's unbearable for me. Like I, I thought about watching it one more time since I was reading the comic again and watch the show again, just to kind of like have everything super fresh, but I really couldn't do it. I just kept thinking about it because we watched it like a year ago for me to rewatch it after having read the comic because I was expecting to like the movie more um, after reading the comic, especially like, so the opening credits, how I mentioned, I didn't know what was going on because they're showing all the old Minutemen. After you read the comic, you do know what's going on. Um, but if you didn't read the comic, you have no idea. So it, it just didn't make sense to do it that way. It's like, you can't explain everything for non-fans, but you can't make it so that they have no idea what's going on. Oh, and there's another thing in that with, you know, his little flashback that he does. You find out in Hollis Mason's book in the comic that one of the old Minutemen's silhouette, she got killed for being a lesbian, basically. Um, and so there's just a little bloop, little blurb about that in Hollis Mason's book. Well, even in the opening credits, like they spend a lot of time on that scene. Like they show her kissing some girl like she's like the, the classic sailor kiss, kissing the nurse, um, which when I was watching, I'm like, why are they showing me this? Like, who is this woman? The first time I saw it, you know, I'm like, who is this woman? Why is she? Why are they recreating this thing here? I, I don't understand. 
Um, and then they show her murdered and, you know, laying on her bed and they, you know, spend a few seconds panning on that. So there's something else that, you know, you didn't need in the movie, but let's show the lesbian murdered cause it's hot. And, um, then you also have, um, the scene where the comedian assaults Silk Spectre, Sally Jupiter, the first one, uh, that's also longer than it is in the comic and way longer than it needed to be. And he added stuff in there too that wasn't in the comic. So in the comic, you're seeing more, there's more panels of him beating her up than there is of him trying to assault her. It's a very like quick attempt and you're not seeing very much like touching. Like it's not sexy. There's nothing sexy about this assault in the comic because it shouldn't be, right? It's assault. It's not sexy. There should be nothing sensual or sexy about it. But yet Zack Snyder, in his movie, the way that he interpreted this scene, I guess, was to make it very sexy. And let's push her up against the pool table. I mean, it's, it's still not sexy because she doesn't want it. But the things that he's doing, it's like stuff that... Ugh. Anyway, he pushes her up against the pool table and he's like slowly running his hand down her back and you're just like what are what are you doing that's not in the comic like why why are you spending so much time on this this scene here like you can pretty much convey what's going on without showing any of it you really just need like a few seconds of audio from the room as you're showing like the camera from outside like that's really all you need because hooded justice uh one of the old minute men who never shows his face ends up coming in and stopping it. So it's like, you could have just showed him walking up and hearing what was going on. And you could have made it like really just a few seconds and not a several minute scene and not trying to make it sexy. And then one, Oh, this really, really fucking pissed me off that he did this too. Zack Snyder. So when Rorschach breaks into the comedian's apartment and he's looking around, which also spending way too much time showing him look around like yes they're showing it in the comic but again you're trying to get stuff out you're trying to tell this story and get this material in here and again you're complaining oh it's so hard to adapt i can't do it there's too much well stop fucking adding stuff in all this boring shit that doesn't need to be there so like the the book is very very fast paced it has like a nice rhythm to it and it just keeps flowing you never feel like you're at a lull in the story and constantly in the movie watchmen the movie it's not even something you have to read it's the movie it should just have that momentum and it doesn't but anyway so he's he's looking around the comedian's apartment and the comedian has a framed picture of sally jupiter like on his nightstand or on his dresser in his bedroom and that's just fucking disgusting. How dare you try to fucking suggest to me that this guy who assaulted this woman, who tried to take something that wasn't his and then beat her up because she said no, broke her fucking ribs because she said no. You're going to try to tell me that he actually cares for her. Oh, look how much he thinks about her and loves her. <laughs> Gross. Disgusting. In the comic, Sally still had an affinity for him. Like she was still kind of drawn to him in some way and was kind of willing to forgive him. But that's not, it's not supposed to be a good thing in this story. It's supposed to be a messed up thing that she, that she is. And nowhere in the comic does it have him with a fucking picture of Sally Jupiter on his dresser. Maybe I'm wrong. I went back and double checked. 
I didn't see one. And I think that's just really gross to suggest. And if it was in there, you should leave it out because there's nothing, I'm sorry, there's nothing redeemable about that. Don't try. Oh, he just really cared about her. So that's why he assaulted her. Like, that's what you're suggesting to me. And like, no, get that the fuck out of here. Um, really, really didn't like that. But the thing that pissed me off the most that Zack Snyder changed that for some reason, a lot of people, even like fans of the book think is a better ending, which I just can't wrap my head around why anyone thinks that this was a better ending. So instead of the squid, um, because basically because Zack Snyder didn't know how to do it and make it look good. That's, that's essentially what it came down to. He's got all these excuses for it, but ultimately that's what it is. Um, he changes the ending. It's not the squid. Since Ozymandias is already framing Dr. Manhattan for like cancer and all this stuff, he has it just go a step further, well, several steps further, and has him framing Dr. Manhattan as having attacked not just New York City, but other large cities throughout the world. And it's just like there was just some big blast and boom, these cities are destroyed. It's like a big hole. Well, one, it's pretty anticlimactic. There's lots of issues with it. Um, it's very anticlimactic. Um, you also get like, you lose a lot of the imagery that was in the comic of just like that. Really? It wasn't, it wasn't like gore and blood just for the sake of gore and blood. It was just to really show you like the, uh, severity, the intensity of like that many people just walking around, living their lives, just going through another day, dealing with their own problems and boom, they're dead. It, I mean, it's, you lose all of that the capturing of like the, the, the togetherness of all the people around us, you know, it's just, you're, you're losing all of that. And instead you're having them, you know, Lori and Dr. Manhattan, when they find out what happened, cause they go back and they end up just in this hole that was New York city. It's just gray. It's just this big gray scene instead of like the big squid tentacles and all the colors of, you know, the buildings and the people in the street and does a much better job showing destruction than this big gray hole, um, of like fucking concrete and dirt and shit. Um, so that is just really stupid. Um, and you lose a lot with that, but on top of it, it doesn't make sense that Ozymandias would choose that. Like, none at all. So, I mean, obviously the squid didn't work as far as, like, saving the world, which you don't know in the comic. You know, everything ends before you know if, if Adrian did succeed in uniting the world. But, it, you know, he probably didn't, right? <laughs> and even, you know, Dr. Manhattan as he's leaving and Adrian invites, like, I did it, right? It's all over. This is the end. And he's like, nothing ever ends, Adrian. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of like the last thing that he says to Adrian before he leaves. But um, he thinks that he wanted to create a common enemy, an enemy that would unite all people of the world. So here's, there's, there's two reasons glaring reasons kind of why Dr. Manhattan being the attacker wouldn't work for uniting humanity. 
Number one, in the comic, and even in the movie, the Americans have claimed him. He works for the American government. He fought the Vietnam War for the Americans and won the Vietnam War for the Americans. He is essentially American property. It doesn't matter that he left to Mars for a little bit. It's only been, you know, a few days, a few weeks, whatever. Like, no, I think, yeah, just a few days. So it's not like, oh, he doesn't work, you know, for the government anymore. Of course, you know, they had that stuff going on where they're trying to figure out if he is giving people cancer or not. But that doesn't mean like that the Americans are like completely done with him, right? Or that the rest of the world would think that. So if he's making an attack, even if it does happen to just one city in America or even a couple cities in America, he's still attacking the rest of the world. So obviously some countries are going to think that America had something to do with it. Like America basically, you know, they didn't build this guy because he, you know, what happened to him happened because of the intrinsic field chamber. But, you know, they kind of made him who he was and put him in the role that he was in. And he, you know, was kind of just a puppet for all this stuff, really. And, um, you know, he he wouldn't be like you would have other people in the world blaming America for this and being against America. So at, at the very least. Right. So there would be conflict there, if nothing else. Um, on top of that. There's um, a part in the comic where um, Dr. Manhattan is, you know, talking about his time in the Vietnam War and how he killed all these people and destroyed these villages. And the people there were still wanting to surrender to him personally and were bowing down to him. And he mentions that it was almost like a religious awe. And he does get talked about as like kind of a god sometimes. So... If he did something like this so large scale and you already have people in Vietnam, which is now a part of America, um, who revere him in a religious sense to the point where they want to bow down to him and say, oh, you destroyed us. Now we will bow down to you. Um, certainly you're going to have a large number of people who are, you know, now saying that, hey, we got to treat Dr. Manhattan basically like the Christian God. Right. Like, because that's what he does. He like destroys people or he'll destroy part of the world or he'll send a hurricane here or he'll make this person die of cancer or he'll have a famine happen over here. And people are like, well, now we need to praise him for this. Like he's trying to tell us that we need to worship him. That's why there's those wildfires in California, because he wants us to worship him. And people are crazy enough to worship and revere something that wants to destroy them that is so much more powerful than them. And so clearly that's going to happen here. And someone like Adrian Veidt, who is irreligious, is going to recognize that. Like, I just... Why? Why the fuck would he choose to frame Dr. Manhattan as, as having destroyed the world or, you know, these cities in the world intentionally? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Even the cancer thing that Ozzy, Mandius had framed him for was accidental. He wasn't like intentionally giving people cancer. It was just because of like who he was. So it just, 
No, that ending makes no sense. There's absolutely no way that Adrian Veidt would be like, yeah, this is a good idea. The The whole world will unite against Dr. Manhattan because it's not like anyone already fucking kind of worships him or he's not owned by the American government. Like, come on, come on. I just, I really, really, that's what, that's the good ending. No, it makes no sense. It makes no sense to me. Even like... <laughs> Watching it the first time, I had no fucking clue what happened. No fucking clue. No idea what was going on. And the second time, I was just infuriated because I'm like, well, this could have been better. And the reason it could have been better is because I saw Damon Lindelof do it on the show when he did Watchmen for HBO. He brought the squid in there and he fucking nailed it. It was a really, really good scene with a really good setup, too. It was a flashback with one of the the current characters that he's introduced um, in his new world for HBO's Watchmen. Well, I mean, it's the same world. He's, like, continuing it. And he's having a flashback that he's in New Jersey across the water when the squid hits in New York City. And he's affected by the blast because the squid has, like, a psychic blast with it, too, because it got fucking, like, teleported in. So... And then it pans over across the water and you see the squid like through all the buildings and they start playing New York, New York by Frank Sinatra. And it's 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 a really, really great scene. Um, So I think I think that Damon Lindelof did Watchmen way, way better than Zack Snyder. And um, again, it's a really, really difficult story to adapt and especially to make a movie. Um, I think that there's a way you could do it, uh, that you could adapt, like, all the material, like, the comic, the stuff after each volume, the little excerpts that you get, all the backstories. I think you can work just about all of that into a movie. I think you'd have to make it two movies. You'd have to split the book up into two movies, I think, to be able to tell the story well in a way that wasn't too long. Because you know how I feel about three-hour movies. I don't fucking like them. It's, It's too long. Give me two movies that goes past two and a half hours. If it goes past an hour and 40 minutes, even just that's a sufficient movie. Hour and 40 minutes. That's good. None of this two hour, 20 minute nonsense. No, I'm I'm actually fine with two hour movies, but 90 minutes, hour 40. Mm, that's a beautiful fucking movie right there. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was still really difficult, but. You know, he messed up on a lot of things that he didn't need to mess up on. And he added a lot of things in the movie that he didn't need to add in that were just unnecessary. Could have spent that time on something else. Oh, I also want to mention that he he really he fucked up the sex scene, too. Lori and Dan in the comic, they finally have sex after they go out in their costumes, after they try to have sex and can't. But now they're in their costumes. So they're like their true selves. And that's something that Zack Snyder misses with the sex scene. Um, because he tries to just make it sexy and you don't really see like any of the sex scene in the comic. And here you have like this long, stupid sex scene, whatever. Before I get into this show, I know I already started getting into it, but let me just say one more thing about the movie. Um, Zack Snyder would later claim that it was satire of what? What, what was the satire? Explain that. <sighs> okay. So, the show, Damon Lindelof fucking loves Watchmen, loves it. Um, 
knows the story inside and out, has been reading it since he was 13. Um, Damon Lindelof is the guy who created Lost, which I had seen some of it, didn't really care for it. But the work he did on Watchmen is incredible. And you can tell that like he loved the story and the characters and the imagery. It just seemed like Zack Snyder, when you're watching his movie, it seems like he's like, Oh, cool story. They're fighting and they're doing this and they're jumping and yay. Like, that's what it seems like Zack Snyder got out of this. But Damon Lindelof, it seems like he really just appreciated everything about the story. So they spent, he and his team, and he makes a note to, you know, talk a lot about his team and how much they did and how it's not just him. Unlike Zack Snyder, who's like, oh, I'm going to be the savior of this movie. I need to do it to save other people from a bad version. Like, get over yourself. Yeah, he really said that. I know I said I'm going to stop talking about him, but ugh, he drives me crazy. A little Ozymandias complex there. Um, but, you know, Damon Lindelof would talk about how much his team was working with him. And, you know, they were spending time to get to know this story if they didn't already know it in their world building, spending all this time world building, just like Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons had done and trying to look at, you know, realistic, you know, realistic, it's an alternate universe, but like plausible scenarios that would have played out with these characters. And then he's also trying to bring current issues into the story, just like Alan Moore had with, you know, the worry of nuclear war being so present in the eighties, um, in the Watchmen story, he's, there's bringing up a lot of stuff about racial tensions. And he even ties in the 1921 Tulsa massacre in Oklahoma, uh, and works that into the story. It's set in Tulsa and, um, they, he does like a, a, a flashback of the massacre happening and I didn't even know about it. This really happened. <laughs> I didn't know about it until I watched this show. Tell me how I had to watch a fucking HBO show about a comic book before I learned about this fucking awful, terrible massacre where these people were being, Oh God, I'm getting a phone call. Is it still recording? Cause I have no idea. I'm not going to keep going when <laughs> my phone's ringing just in case you're missing any of this. Because I can't even scroll and see on my settings. Stop calling me. I don't have time for this. Who was that? I'm sorry. I have to check. I don't know. I went away. Um, okay. <laughs> now I completely forgot what I was saying. Ugh, dang. Phone calls. Anyway, it's probably someone, you know, from my, my business. It's like, hey, I need your services. But look, I'm doing it again. I'm taking a long time. So at least so the last time I tried recording this, I was talking for an hour and 45 minutes before I had even started talking about the show. So we're an hour and six minutes now. And um, I'm finally, I'm already talking about the show. So, oh yeah, so Tulsa Massacre. So they're like dropping bombs from planes onto these buildings. They're stealing from all these businesses. And like, this was like a really established area. It was called the Black Wall Street. There were banks, movie theaters, jewelers, laundromats, like just everything. 
and they just completely destroyed it. So you need to go look up about the Tulsa massacre because shit's fucking nuts and read all about it and you'll be just really ashamed of the country that you live in. (laughs) It'll feel really great. But so he's working that into there. And then one of the boys that was that survived the Tulsa massacre, Damon Lindelof. Oh, and here's more spoilers, by the way, for this show. He actually makes the young boy Hooded Justice, who is one of the Minutemen in the comic book you don't ever see. And he makes it work and he makes it all make sense as far as like Hooded Justice's background. So who you're mainly following in this Watchmen story that's set. 30 years into the future from the comic book. Um, so kind of more like our present day in an alternate universe, of course. Um, it's following Angela Abar, who's played by Regina King. And she is incredible. But Angela Abar is a police officer. Pretty much to be a vigilante legally, you have to be um, working with the police. And it's actually outlawed. So vigilantes get arrested and the FBI has this whole task force that Lori Blake is now working for. Yeah, she's using her dad's last name now and she's no longer the Silk Spectre and she's working with the FBI to catch vigilantes and she's a little bitter and a little sour. Um, (laughs) And she's, you know, says she's tired of all the silliness. Um, And then you also have um, Ozymandias, He's also still in the show um, and is much older, of course. Jeremy Irons plays him and he's staying at like some castle, just some grand manor. It's not a castle. Um, And you have no idea where. He looks like he's in some part of England or something. And he's just on his own and has these, these two people, this man and woman that are helping him. And then you find out he's actually on Europa, Moon of Jupiter. Because Dr. Manhattan left Earth, like, for real, for real, not just going to Mars, but he for real, for real left, dipped on everyone. He's like, I don't know how to deal with you guys anymore. I came, I tried to save you, like, shit's fucked up. And so he goes and creates this paradise on Europa. He's creating life. And you get a little more backstory with with John Osterman in it as well. Um, But he sends Adrian to this place because Adrian is all despondent that his plan didn't work. You know, he's kind of isolated himself in Karnak and he's watching his screens of, of TVs, this wall of TVs that he has, just like in the comic where he's, you know, looking at what's going on in the world and seeing all this destruction and devastation still. And he's like, I gave you every chance and you still had to do this. And um, but then you get, you know, lots of new characters. Like I said, there's Sister Knight, Angela Abar, the guy who has a flashback that he, you know, was in the squid attack. He's looking glass and he's a little more Rorschachy. He's into the conspiracies. He has a mask that completely covers his face and you can't see his face. He's like into the new frontiersmen, which was the right wing paper from the comic that, you know, is a little more into the conspiracies and stuff. Um, but you're also, so how Rorschach gets worked into this story is his journal that he was keeping in the comic. At the end of the comic, he drops it with, um, the new frontiersmen. And you're kind of seeing a little bit of the people that work there. Um, and you even get some of their notes at the end of one of the volumes. Um, but you don't really know whether the details of Rorschach's journal come out or not. But in Damon Lindelof's show, they have. And so now there's this group of people who wear Rorschach masks and they call themselves the 7th Cavalry. 
Um, and they're kind of inspired by Rorschach's journal. They quote things from his journal, but they're the KKK. And so they're trying to kind of take back their white power. It's talking about how hard it is to be a white man <laughs> in America. So they have this whole thing set up where they're trying to capture Dr. Manhattan and take his power so that they can, I guess, cleanse the earth. But then you have another character, Lady True, who is like a younger female Adrian Veidt who now has her company. She's a trillionaire. She's doing all these crazy things. She's even made a drug called Nostalgia that you can like access your old memories, which ends up being a storyline. Angela, Sister Knight, she takes her grandfather's Nostalgia pills, which her grandfather is actually Hooded Justice, who was the young boy in the massacre years ago, um, which is why he has such a vendetta against the KKK, which, I mean, do you really need a reason to have a problem with them? Um, <laughs> they give you enough. Um, but uh, he, um, oh gosh, see, look, there I go again. I'm thinking of the episode where Angela takes his, her grandfather's nostalgia pills. Okay, I was talking about that anyway. But you get a whole episode of her, like, in his memories. She's kind of like, you know, in and out, almost in like this comatose state where she's like basically sleeping, but is experiencing all of his memories because she takes like the whole fucking bottle of nostalgia pills and she's having a hard time like separating her reality from his reality and her memories are starting to intertwine with his past memories. And uh, this show focuses a lot on like on trauma. You know, you're still talking about fear and power, just like the Watchmen comic, but the Watchmen comic kind of touches on the trauma. They kind of let you know that there is trauma, but they don't really, they don't really talk about the trauma where this show actually does talk about the trauma where you have hooded justice who kind of started, he, he tried to join the police and, um, you know, it was like the thirties or the forties. And so he was a black man and things weren't going very well for him. Um, so he was kind of taking matters into his own hands and that's when he finds about, finds out about the Cyclops, which is basically what the seventh cavalry used to be. And they're using mind control to try to get black people to attack each other. And it's just, you know, what's interesting in the comic, a, a map that Captain Metropolis is showing the Minutemen about, you know, certain areas in the country they need to work on in the area where Oklahoma is, there's a tab that says black unrest. So there's just more detail that, that Damon Lindelof picked up on that he added to the story. You also are experiencing some of Vietnam being part of America. Angela Abar, you know, was raised in Vietnam. That's where she came from. But the reason that the 7th Cavalry is trying to get Dr. Manhattan and take his power is because they know that he's back on Earth and he's walking around as a human. And here's like a huge, huge, huge spoiler Okay, that's enough time. Uh, <laughs> you've probably have turned this episode off by now. Hopefully, use use some judgment here. All right, <laughs> but um, Doctor Manhattan is actually uh, come to Earth in the form of a human um, to be. Well, he hasn't come in the form of a human. He ends up taking the form of a human to be with this woman, Angela Avar, who <laughs> you know. We've been following this whole story. You don't find out, you know, about 
till closer towards the end that Cal, her husband, is actually Dr. Manhattan. And in the movie, Billy Crudup, who played Dr. Manhattan, and Billy Crudup is great, but he didn't do a good job as Dr. Manhattan, I don't think. Zack Snyder made him too, like, emotionless and flat. And I don't think that Dr. Manhattan was really like that. I mean, he was kind of, I guess he was kind of flat sometimes. He was more matter of fact, but he did have feelings and emotions. Like he fell in love with, with two people. He's talking about never wanting to lose Lori. He's talking about lying to this woman, knowing that he's going to leave this woman like, you know, Janie. So it's like he loves and, and feels things. And he ends up leaving Earth when he feels like he's lost his romantic connection. That's having that love is still something that's very important to him, obviously. So, um, uh, it makes sense that so Doctor Manhattan knew because this has already happened for him that he's going to be destroyed. The Seventh Cavalry does not end up getting his power. Um, nor does Lady True, as she's also trying to. Both of them are stopped um, right at the end. Very amazing, awesome last episode uh, for that show when all that's coming together. Um, but both of them are stopped, but Dr. Manhattan knows he's going to be destroyed, right? So it, it, it makes sense that the last thing he would want to do is just be human again. I mean, he's been, he's been trying to get back to his humanity this whole time time essentially you know even when he goes to create his paradise in europa he still creates other humans <laughs> he has other humans there that are like his ideal human he he put himself back together you know after he had been ripped apart particle by particle because he was clinging on to his humanity that much so i really like that damon took it in this direction and made him you know want to come be human and just be in love with this woman they, he, that's what he talks about. He's like, we're together for 10 years. It ends in tragedy. And Angela's like, I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. It was going to end in tragedy. And he's like, well, don't all relationships end in tragedy? And she's like, well, yeah, I guess you're right. And so bam, they end up getting together. And the episode where they talk about, you know, them getting together and, um, Dr. Manhattan, you know, how he created all the life he did on Europa and, you know, him meeting her and talking about some of the experiences that they're going to have and the fights that they have. It's just, it's just done so well. I can't even decide like what my favorite episode is because the last one's so good. That one's so good. Um, and then you also have, you know, <laughs> the episode where she's reliving her grandfather's memories, which just, oh my God, is done so well. It's just so fucking good. And then you have fucking Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross doing the music for this show. Oh, it's awesome. There's not one thing in it that, that isn't perfect. And Atticus Ross even does what, well, I mean, they get a woman to sing, but he produced this, um, original period piece for, um, the hooded justice memories episode. And it just, oh I, I cannot express to you like how good it is. And what's so cool about it is when Trent Reznor, heard that you know Damon Lindelof was doing Watchmen he also loves Watchmen and so he really really wanted to do the music for it and they've um they've really been en enjoying doing music for movies I think they've already done a couple of things with David Finch is that his name why did that sound wrong when I just said it David Finch right 
Maybe I'm wrong. I'm gonna have to look it up later. It just that didn't sound right as soon as I said it. But they've done a few movies before, and so now they're doing. They're working on the show Watchmen with Damon Lindelof. So they're they're really into like putting themselves out there, and just kind of asking for something if they want it. So they call up, you know, the people working on Watchmen, and they're like, "Hey, you know, we would kind of like to do the music for this show if you're fucking down." And Damon Lindelof had like earlier that day or like the day before had been talking about how awesome it would be to get. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross working on the show and bam, there it is. And like they said that they worked really well together and just Damon made it really, you know, easy to get his vision across. And, you know, he also had that whole team too. And like also like with the show and also with what I've seen of his team, it's, it's diverse, but not forced diversity. It's just diverse, you know? like because because you value ideas over people so anyone you don't care you know what they look like or what gender they are or whatever they're good at writing they got good story ideas you want them to be a part of your team and so it just it just really shows with everything that that he really loved and understood the material and understood the story. He even has the squid still going. Adrian is um, dropping all these mini baby squids just kind of randomly. They're harmless. They don't hurt anyone. They dissolve. But it's just to kind of keep that that fear alive that you know he's even continuing it through all this time. They still don't have cell phones. They have pagers because, you know, with Dr. Manhattan existing, like things would just be all kinds of different. But th- they really get into like just the trauma that one person can have and how that affects your life and the decisions that you make with your life because of that trauma that kind of make you who you are, you know, with no, that's not your decision. You haven't decided to go through that trauma to be this person, but here you are, you're this person now because of this trauma. And some of this trauma you're experiencing is because of trauma that your family members have experienced and you see that you know Angela Abar's like fear and traumas were pretty similar to her grandfather's who was hooded justice and they have this conversation about him talking about you know he thought when he put on the hood and they're talking about all these reasons why you wear masks you know hiding hiding things and like you know trying to protect yourself or whatever and so hooded justice is talking about as as an old man as a grandfather he's talking about how you know when he put the mask on he thought it was like anger is what he felt or Angela said that's what she felt and he's like no it was fear and hurt and so just really getting into like that fear part that was present in in Watchmen and how um, a lot of these people in the original comic were acting the way that they were because of their fear and because of their desire to just have some kind of power with what's going on around them and not feel so helpless and that's exactly what's happening as you know they find out that the 7th Cavalry is trying to take Dr. Manhattan's power and white supremacists are going to take over the fucking world. Like, let's not have that happen. So, um, it's, you know, another present relevant worry that, that people have, you know, obviously not that you're going to get some kind of godlike power, but, (laughs) um, but he just kind of works all these issues into it. And, um, the characters that he does keep, I, I think it makes sense. I think it makes sense that Dr. Manhattan would do what he did, that he would disappear for a while. And then knowing what's going to happen because it's, it's already happening to him, that he would want his last moments to be human where he's 
where he's loving, which is what he kind of wanted most out of, out of his life as Dr. Manhattan was to basically be with someone. Um, I mean, not all he wanted, obviously there were lots of other things he was doing and he was having a hard time like being human, but he still, he still wanted that and he still missed that in himself. And then Ozymandias kind of like almost losing his mind (laughs) one because his plan didn't work that he thought was going to work and he's disappointed in the world and he's having all this conflict within himself about the fact that he killed 3 million people and maybe he didn't need to and he's not really sure but he's still trying to convince himself that he is but he's also trying to convince himself to feel guilty and now he's on Europa because Dr. Manhattan put him there and he's there for like eight years. It takes a while for you to figure out how long he's actually there and what the fuck is going on when he is there because you don't know where he is for a while. But, you know, it makes sense that he would want to go to this place that's perfect where he's being revered and honored for how amazing he is and everything's just perfect and there's no conflict, but that doesn't, it doesn't happen that way, right? It doesn't go that way for him. And he ends up coming back and is brought back to Earth, saved by Lady True, who he finds out is his daughter. She comes and tells him, and he doesn't want to acknowledge it, but finally, as he wants to be saved, he acknowledges it. So in the show, he has all of these Mr. Phillips and Crookshanks. So that's the man and the woman that um, Dr. Manhattan created on Europa. Well, he can make any more of them anytime. There's like these little babies like in this river. Um or lake so he can come generate them into humans into full-grown adults so he has like a bunch of them and he's been trying to figure out how to leave this place in you know on this moon and he's flinging all these bodies out of there and they're landing outside of this little protective bubble and onto the actual moon and he's built his own little spacesuit and everything And he knows that Lady True, because when she came to him before he left for Antarctica, told him there was going to be a satellite passing over Europa because she knows that Dr. Manhattan is there and she's going to get a picture of it. And um, so he knows exactly when the satellite is coming. So he's set up all these bodies (laughs) to write save me with the bodies so she sees it when she takes the picture. And she does end up saving him um, only because of her own hubris really but um she uh or not she he adrian when he's setting up the bodies he's kind of like having to mangle them a little bit and they're all kind of frozen because he's trying to you know make s a v you know all those letters you know how to spell that um in the comic with the comic that's in the comic the black freighter the uh pirate that is not the he's not a pirate but the um the guy that is stranded that's trying to get back to his hometown and leave this island. He's building a raft, but he's worried that it's not going to float. So he uses the bodies of his crewmates that are dead. They're dead bloated bodies and ties them to the raft to help float better. So there's just one little thing from the comic that he worked in. And he has tons of that in every single episode. Like there's even a book under the hood, which was Hollis Mason's book, like, you know, sitting on the desk. There's just, all kinds of stuff that, that he, he worked into it. And there's, I know like I spoiled like quite a bit <laughs> major details about HBO's Watchmen, but it's, it's so good and it's still kind of new. Like, I just, I don't want to tell you 
everything. I really think you should watch it, even if you're never, ever going to read the comic. You don't need to. This show made me want to read the comic, which, of course, I know has shaped how I view the comic, obviously. Um, but I also made sure to watch a lot of, you know, interviews with Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons to see what they had to say about the comic as well. So anything that I assessed about these characters in the actual comic, it's been confirmed by Alan Moore. It's not just my opinion. There might be a couple things I said there that were just my opinion, but it's, it's, I, I made sure that it's what the author was, um, intending when they wrote the story and, I just, I think that Damon Lindelof and his team fucking nailed it. And the music is incredible. It's just, you know, music can make um, any scene. And they they really do that. The music is, is a character itself almost. Um, so I really think that, I really think that you should, that you should go watch it. So I won't tell you too much more about it, even though it keep going on and on. And uh, another way that, that they kind of honor the comic, I guess, is, after each episode, they were putting stuff out on HBO. They had a, a little website for their Watchmen where they were giving you more details about everything that was happening, just like the comic did after each volume. And so you're getting into all this kind of backstory, these FBI letters and memos, and it's just, it's really cool. And they spent a lot of, a lot of hard work on it to, to make sure that it was really going to be good and just be a fucking Watchmen story. Unlike Watchmen, the movie, which was just another superhero movie. That's all it was. Story was great. Show was great. <sighs> movie sucked. I, I think, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to do it there. I think I've got this, you know, about like three times as long as I usually make my episodes. Yep. An hour and a half. Jesus Christ. Well, if you made it this far, congratulations. You probably like Watchmen, and that's probably why <laughs> you kept listening. Um, again, if you haven't checked any of this out, you got to check it out. You need to read that book. If you don't like comics, I don't read other comics. Like, it's just, <laughs> this is a good book. Um, and the show's incredible, too. So good. I've seen it so many times. Um, probably almost as many times as I've read the book now. Still only seen the movie twice. I'm hoping I'm going to keep it that way. Don't recommend the movie. Um, to share your thoughts with me. I would love to know what you guys thought about Watchmen, what you thought about what I thought about it. Um, so you can email me. I need friends pod at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram. I need friends underscore pod. Um, I'm also on YouTube. I, I don't know. You might have a hard time finding me if you look for like, I need friends pod. Maybe I should put like the channel link in the description. Who knows if I'm going to probably not, but you know, you can subscribe to me on YouTube. Also, if you want, if you're listening to this on YouTube, then you can subscribe to me there. I only have like 10 subscribers. I don't really know what, like, I don't know if I, if I'm, want more subscribers on YouTube or what? I don't know, but I have my shows there. Also, you can watch it there. Eventually I'm going to start like doing actual videos. So you'll need to go to YouTube for that. Anyway, here I go again, doing my, my little rambling. Cause I don't know how to conclude <laughs> my episodes, especially when I've been talking for an hour and a half. So look, there's Watchmen. I'm not telling you what the next episode is because 
I don't know if I'm going to change my mind about it. All right. And I'm, I'm not going to set myself up for this stress ever again. <laughs> All right. I'm calling it a day. Till next time. Bye, friends.